All right, good afternoon, good evening, good morning to wherever you are. For those of you watching, um, for those of you who are coming back a second or third time, welcome back. For those of you that are new, we are Clarity. Uh, for everyone that you see on this call, Rashawn, Tyree, myself, Perry, Marquise, uh, Gabby, Max, Jay, hope I'm not missing anybody, Rebecca as well. Um, we all united together are Clarity. Um, so one of the things that we wanted to jump on this week, just going to jump right into it. I actually have a question. I have a question for all of you guys on this call, um, as well as those that are listening or watching. Um, do you guys know what 13 is, the documentary? Fire. Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. Nah. So I've actually heard about 13 myself. I've heard about it from a couple of different people. Um, it's on my list of things to do for this week to watch. I haven't gotten around to it, but um, it was something that me and my mom actually discussed, just the idea behind mass incarceration as it relates to um, people of color and what exactly that is um, and how exactly kind of we got to where we are with mass incarceration today um, versus where we started back in the 80s. Um, so is there anybody that wants to tap in on that or am I just going to take off? <laughs> Go ahead and unload the clip, Perry. <laughs> go to work. All right. So um, in any event, I'll just go ahead and jump right in. So basically, from what I understand, 13 is a documentary that explains in depth and in detail what mass incarceration is, why it's here, and where it comes from. Um, one of the interesting points that was made to me in regards to 13 was that it also shows a flip side of the coin where it shows a lot of people such as politicians and others that were actually um, pushing the agenda of mass incarceration of people of color, but did not realize it. So an example of that will it have been um, Bill Clinton, who my mom was explaining to me. I think he was the one that came up with the bill. I think the bill was called two for one. And so basically what that bill did was it put initiative in for uh, police forces and police officers to actually uh, take down drug rings. Um, now, what was not realized at the time that that bill was pushed was the fact that it would tear down black households and the households of colored people by removing the head of the household. Um, but as my mom explained it, because she was living back in that era too, there were so many black people that were complaining about the crack epidemic that was going on, where our neighborhoods were infested with crack, heroin, all of that type of stuff due to the cocaine that was brought into the United States and was dumped into our neighborhoods. Um, now many people look at it and they say, yeah, you know, the crack thing, you know, a bunch of crack dealers in our neighborhoods and things like that, but I feel like it's important for us to recognize where that comes from. And where the crack cocaine comes from in the 80s was a infrastructure that was torn down. As black people in our own communities, we had all of our own things, especially as we were coming out of uh, segregation. So we had our own businesses, we had our own restaurants, we had our own, even athletic leagues, um, we had our own stores. All of these things were in our community. Um, but there were some economic agendas that were pushed that made it more difficult for us as uh, black urban Americans to continue to maintain our businesses. So a lot of black people went out of business 
in the 80s. A lot of black people lost their businesses. And obviously with the loss of business is a loss of income. So when you're looking at that from a family perspective and a family dynamic, the next question is, okay, now that I'm out of my main source of income, what route can I take to make sure that my family doesn't starve? You know, especially as a man of the household. And so that is where the crack cocaine comes in because so coincidentally, right? Um, during the 80s, when all of that was going on, cocaine was dumped into our neighborhoods. Now, the reason that something was done about the cocaine being dumped into our neighborhoods was the fact that it started to filter and infiltrate the suburban communities where white people were. And it started to affect white people. And so when white people started to complain, that was when the government looked at it as an issue because as we all know on this call, we can just go ahead and be blunt about this. Just like we have the regular economy, the regular economy also has a black market. Both of them need each other to thrive. So we're not going to sit here and be ignorant and act like we don't all know that the government is not aware of drugs being brought into the United States because they're very aware of it. They're actually a part of what's going on. <laughs> so in any event, um, coincidentally, once all of those black business owners went out of business, the next viable option was to get creative, especially as black people. We've always had to be creative and get creative because we've always had less. So we've always had to make more. And that is where you get the drug kingpins. That's where you get your Nikki Barnes, your Frank Lucas. All of those guys came out of the 80s. But the reason they were pushing that stuff so much is because our source of income was removed from us. And that source of income was our businesses that were self-sustaining. We were self-sustaining ourselves. We were economically empowered at that time. So now that you can see where we are now and people are coming back around to that, you can see the gaps in the generation in regards to economic empowerment and what that can do for a community. And so that's how we land here on this side of mass incarceration. Because due to the creativity of black people, we ended up landing ourselves in a trap that was set for us. And that's how we get massively incarcerated. And that's how we end up inside of all of these prison systems. I do want to add, I think, um, I think a big part of mass incarceration is the whole idea that it was racially motivated, which, which you kind of touched on. Um, but I think there's a president we all know and love, Ronald Reagan, <laughs> that's uh, very much pressed this racially motivated message, selling the message of uh, crack babies and um, women on welfare because the men now were gone. Um, it, it, it wasn't, or it, it, like you said, the trap was set for us. It was, it was a racial thing. And now black people are seen as, <laughs> as gangsters and as crack babies. And so they're, they're worthless, even more worthless than they already were coming out of the 400 years of history behind that. Yeah, that's a good point. Because essentially what that was, was that was like a revolving door where the narrative that was already being pushed about us was kind of confirmed through um, people looking at the end result of this series of events. It's kind of like a quote that I saw uh, probably about a month back. The quote said, be careful that you don't compare your chapter one to somebody else's chapter 20. A lot of us look at things and we emulate the end result. We don't emulate the process because we can't see it. All we see is the end result. We want that, so we emulate it. 
Um, and so in regards to what Jay had touched on, um, a lot of people saw the narrative being pushed about us. Then they saw the situations that we landed in. They didn't see the traps. They just saw the situations that we landed in. And that was confirmation for the rest of the world. Oh yeah, these are bad people. Oh yeah, they are gangsters. Oh yeah, they do shoot and kill. Oh yeah, they do do drugs. Or oh yeah, they do sell drugs. Oh yeah, they do tear down their community. But I feel like it's very important for us to ask the question, where, where, where was the seed planted? Where's the seed? Because we can look at the plant and we can marvel at the leaves and all of that great stuff. But you can't truly understand what you're looking at unless you understand the genesis. We have to understand the genesis of these issues. And the genesis is, is there was an agenda being pushed to suppress a group of people. A lot of people would not want to believe that. And that situation was so naturally homegrown that it did not look as such. The only way you find out is if you dig into history and you can connect those dots. Because it's not just as simple as digging into history and looking at a timeline where these things chronologically occur. It's about connecting the dots and seeing what domino hit what domino to cause this domino effect of what we're looking at now after all the dominoes have fallen and the dust has settled. Yeah. Um, I actually have seen 13th. I've seen it twice. I saw it when it came out. I think it was 2017 it came out. Um, and I saw it recently again. And there's this clip of, or not a clip, but like a recording of someone in the, in the Reagan administration. Essentially, it was like a, a hidden, like, interview. And it was like, oh, you're not going to record this, right? And he's dropping the N-word. Like, we have to get these people off the streets. Like, it was... It was, it was like, wow, like, and people don't believe that it's, it was racially motivated. No, you're just, you're just a gangster. And that's not the whole story. Like we were just saying, um, another book I'm reading now that it goes, I think even in greater depth of mass incarceration is the new Jim Crow. I'm thinking everybody's maybe heard of it now. Um, it, it just reaches like 10th anniversary, but it goes all the way back from like, um, what's, uh, What's that? What was that system of uh, indentured servants? It goes from there, and it tells you the entire story up until we are here. We are now mass incarceration, and it's it's crazy. Like like you said, they're judging at, at your chapter twenty where we're landed, but you got to look at where it all started, where it really all started, and it's it's wild. So definitely read that book if you're more. Interested. I think Anybody? um, I think that's all I yeah. In regards to this conversation and kind of similar to the 13th. Uh, I, I think, and maybe this is because of TFA and being so much in the education mindset these days, but the school to prison pipeline is something that's been on my mind a lot uh, these past few months. I see everybody nodding their heads, so everybody can like really speak on it from their own personal viewpoints. But something I guess that became new to me was how it's started just from these like small school policies, the way we treat kids, the way uh, kids that look like me um, or look like a lot of us end up getting in more trouble than their white counterparts. Or they could be doing the same thing and it's almost just like our justice system where the brown kid's going to get in a lot more trouble for the same thing that the white kid did. And a lot of that is like um, the negative effects it can have of putting a child out of the classroom. So it's like, okay, this, this child got in trouble but in order to fix that, instead of giving them more school, we're going to kick them out of school. And now we're putting them back in the streets where they can be negatively affected by these things going on around them, where 
in all honesty, for a lot of people nowadays, and we don't even realize it, school is that one safe place they have. And if the teachers aren't on their side, which now that everybody's really starting to learn about history, we don't even really teach history correctly. But if the teachers aren't on their side, that's really just doubling down on all these negative stereotypes that these kids hear growing up and that they end up growing to be like, and then that ends up putting them in prison and in jail. And that adds all the more to the incarceration rates that Perry was talking about earlier. So yeah, if anybody else wants to hit on the school to prison pipeline, I think that's something that's really been coming to light these past few months. Yeah, I mean, I can touch a little bit uh, about just some examples that I've like heard or like learned about specific, not, not so much about like the school to prison pipeline, but about like, um, like black kids being in the wrong place at the wrong time and how that is like a way more dangerous situation for them than it would be for their white counterparts. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard about the Central Park Five, but there's like a Netflix show that came out like a year or two ago about it and I watched it. Um, and it just, it touched on how, you know, these like five boys, um, African-American, along with a ton of other boys were going to Central Park. Um, and they were like just hanging out or whatever. And they ended up being in the same place at the same time as like a white woman was like raped on a run. And they were like caught by the police, assumed to have done the crime. And then it, the show even goes into how they were interrogated and pressured into testifying against each other like and and it's crazy because we have these tapes even now of like police telling one kid to to say something against another but then telling like another kid to pin it on like the the same person like and so these these testimonies were basically created um yeah it's it's called when they see us and um it just it really blew my mind because these these kids uh they went to prison for anywhere from like five years to like 15 or 20 and they were eventually exonerated but like those are years you really just can't get back and it was all because they were in the wrong place at the wrong uh the wrong time and it's completely unfair um and so it just it just goes to show that there are um just great discrepancies in the freedoms and liberties that are that are granted to um ch especially children in, in the united states and it, um also, another thing, like talking, like kind of branching off of that, not really talking about like what Max is saying, but kind of branching off the differences and like being in the right place, wrong, like right place, wrong time. Uh, it, you can see the differences in neighborhoods because, like, if you look at a lot of neighborhoods and a lot of states, you can see like a clear start of like where the the hood or the projects start, and then where the, like a nice white neighborhood starts, and then it's like. It's like little systems being put in place. I can't remember the exact name of what it was called. I'm not going to get on here and pretend I'm say the wrong name. Redlining. Yes, yes, that's what it is. Red and mm -hmm. like you, you put them in. Like, all right, this is this is the line we're going to draw. Where like this is where we'll put you know the black and black, and this is where we'll put their schools and stuff at. And they pay they pay taxes, but their taxes end up going towards the rich part of the states, the rich part of the neighborhoods, stuff like that. And they don't get the same funding as someone who goes to private school as someone who goes to public school. I've been to both. And I can tell you there is a ginormous, ginormous difference in between a public school and a private school. A public school, you kind of just get the, literally the bare minimum of everything. Like everything is a bare minimum. And so teachers, they kind of just are there. Most, there's some that care. I'm not going to say there's, you know, every teacher that goes to the public, teaches a public school doesn't care. 
But you never see the the gap in in the I don't know the correct wording, but you can see the gap in uh, public school teacher, private school teacher, and the level of care and the level of of effort put into your education. You, it is it's kind of sad, and then it puts you in, in, and puts like these these black and brown and poor poor kids in situations where they can't succeed as much as someone who goes to a private school. And but it's so hard to get into private schools because of the the money difference, and not a lot of parents can pay that money difference. So it's it's a lot it's a lot of systems in place, whether it's you know the mass incarceration, or redlining, or just like the justice system, like Mike said, you know you can be in the wrong place, wrong time, did nothing, absolutely nothing, and you kind of just it can ruin your whole life, and you did nothing, and there's nothing you can do to control higher life went in some instances if that makes sense. Just start, right, so, uh, oh go ahead. There's there's two things that I want to touch on. Um I've got one of them. Um oh okay one real quick. So I agree that yeah it's a lot easier to be in the wrong place at the wrong time as a black person. But also you can just be I could be right here and then get killed by a police officer. Like, that's scary to say, and of course I don't want that to happen. Like Brown Taylor. Yeah, but like, you could be sleeping at home. You could be going for a walk. Like, these are people in the past couple of months that have been killed for like, doing human things. Like, that's one of the things that like, we're already set up at a disadvantage because of the redlining and the kind of division between neighborhoods and the differences in education and things like that. Um, even if you're at home doing everything that you're supposed to do, like this is why our parents, no matter what, tell you, hey, like if you get pulled over, do this, like, you know, you're gonna get looks at the store if you wear a backpack, anything like that. Like because you could be at the right place at the wrong time. So it's like it's kind of scary. Um, but the second thing I want to say was the topic of defunding the police, I think, kind of ties in with the education and communities thing. Because a lot of people I found don't understand the purpose when people say that. Um, a lot of people might think that when people talk about defunding the police, they want to get rid of the police or they want to take all their money and then like have them walking around with like batons or something. But like, if you look at their financials, compared to education systems in certain communities, like there's a huge difference. Um, so when people talk about defunding the police, it's taking some of those funds that really you don't need because like at my school, FIU, they have military vehicles on campus. There's like three of them just sitting in the garage, like just chilling. I've never seen them driven. Like, I don't know why they have those. So it's like, you take some of those funds and apply it to these communities. And actually, I read an article um, in North Carolina somewhere, I think it was Apex maybe, or around Apex. Um, like the mayor or something agreed to give some reparations for black people, but it wasn't directly to families. It, it was, was more of, what was it? It was Asheville. It was Asheville, yeah. Um, they decided to take some of their funds and give it to the communities to build up the education systems and to build up, you know, like community centers and the homes and things like that that are already there. 
And I feel like that's a major way to support those kids in those positions and to start to get away from the school to prison pipeline because you have to start with the education because just like Marquis said, that's the safe space. Whether the kids know it or not, that's the safe space. And this, that's where you groom the kids. So if you take those years away from them, then you can't expect them to do, you know, a whole lot for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Um, to add to the defund the police, I also like hear a lot of people like not understanding it or getting angry about it. Um, defund doesn't mean like take away, like like Tyra was saying, uh, take away the whole thing. It just means to lessen the funds. Um, police departments have too much money, like way too much money, and they're militarized, right? So you give, imagine the harm that happens when you give policemen with six months of training a freaking rocket launcher for no reason <laughs> like it's one thing to give the actual military these things because they might need them they might not that's a different conversation but to give these same weapons of mass destruction to policemen with six months training imagine imagine the <laughs> the casualties and when 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 these men and women also have implicit bias that's the difference between life and life and death that's when you lose people that's when people die um and so i would encourage whoever's watching this or even people in this chat maybe who haven't seen the numbers haven't seen the statistics on this actual like why we're saying defund the police it's insane and back to the uh school to prison pipeline maybe marquise knows the actual stats but i know um they're just crazy numbers, the amount of schools that have a school police officer, but no, um, what's the word? No um, therapy. What's the, no what's counselor. No, no counselors. Counselors. <laughs> counselors, I couldn't think of the word. But yeah, no counseling, no, no like moral guidance. Like how, like that doesn't make any sense at all. Um, so I would encourage you to look up the stats because when I, when I saw them, I was, I was in shock. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, I, I just have a quick thing to add to Terry's first point, um, because he's, you know, you're absolutely right about you can be in the right place. Um, and it just things still happen because um, I'm reading this book by Brian Stevenson. Um, and he founded the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. So he, um, he does a lot of work trying to liberate um, innocent death row prisoners. And it's an incredible book. It really um, the work he does is really motivating um, and, and also very sad. Um, but one of his um, biggest her, or most uh, talked about clients in his uh, book, it, his name is Walter McMillan, and he was uh, con uh, convicted of murder on the account of um, another man's testimony or a couple of other men's testimony. Um, but throughout the, the story, you find out that at the time of the murder, he was nowhere near the scene. Um, he was actually at a family barbecue um, where they were, or it was like a family cookout or some kind of bake sale. Um, and all of his family members could vouch for him. And on top of that, just there were so many details that later came, um, came out to prove his innocence. And it just, it literally took like so long for him to be exonerated. And it was the hardest process I, I could ever have imagined. Um, so the book just really goes into the flaws of our criminal justice system and how um, it's, it's really, um, 
done a disservice to a lot of people who are very clearly innocent. Yeah, anyone who's watching this who hasn't read the book or um, seen the movie, I think the movie came out in December of last year, um, sometime in the last few months. And um, it's an incredible resource. And uh, like Max said, he runs the Equal Justice Initiative and they do such great work. Um, and please, if you haven't checked them out, people who watch this, please go research them, donate to them. They do incredible work all over the country. Um, and it started in Alabama. So if you're from Alabama and you're watching this, please go look at them, visit their site in Montgomery. It's a crazy eye-opening experience. So please go. And, and they do it for free too. They provide, they provide the legal counsel completely free because these are very, these are people who don't have any other options and aren't getting any help. And they're usually like at the end of the line, right? They do a lot of work on death row. Yeah. I mean, these are people that like, if they don't help them now, they will be executed. So there's another story off of that too. It's, um, I mean, y'all probably saw this. It was like all over social media for a minute, but the guy that went on America's Got Talent, that um, he was in prison for, I looked it up to make sure I didn't say anything wrong. He spent almost 37 years in prison for a rape that he didn't commit. And it was literally, he was exonerated after they did a DNA test. That was all they had to do. That was it. And they... And I just remember sitting there watching it and like watching this man tell his story about the 36 and some years he spent away from his family, away from his friends, all because it, it's almost, I think sometimes like just easy to pin it on someone and let that be that. And that's not, yeah. And that's not like, that's so not right. And I remember watching it and just getting like so, so angry because literally like in some cases, all it takes is someone to, to advocate for these people and say, no, like this investigation wasn't right. All we need is a DNA test. Like that's, you know, and that's, it's just crazy to me. But that to me is what really puts what Tyree said in a lot of perspective. Like you, mm -hmm. No, as he said, like I could just be sitting here right now. Um, y'all know me. Y'all know some of the things like I've done. Oh, Marquise has a great resume or whatever, but somebody else is literally just gonna see like this. And that and like that's it. They're not gonna ask any questions. Like that that's the only thing I'm gonna be judged by. They don't know me, they never met my family, they like nothing. But as soon as they see you and how you look, they have this their own can like misconception really but their own view of what you are how you act how you talk the people you hang out with stuff like that and so that's what really puts it in perspective that that could be anybody that looks like me and that's what makes it all the more dangerous in my mind and sad if we're being honest yeah um and there's something too that i want to touch on too um so like now we have the things in place where we're having lawyers going to get these people off death row that have been on wrongfully. Um, but I think we need to be as persistent with keeping those things from happening in the first place because that's 37 years gone of somebody's life. Like, gone. You can never get that back. Your time is very valuable and precious. Just like Gabby said, you couldn't see your family. Like, 
That's I couldn't imagine losing 37 years doing nothing and then coming out and having to integrate back into the country. Like we, I think as important as it is to look into these things and kind of fix what happened in the past, we need to really keep those things from happening in the first place. Because being on death row too, that's scary. Having to come to terms with losing your life for something that you didn't do. That's that's a huge thing, but that's all I want to say. Um, no, very good. Anyway, um, just hopping back a couple steps, um, back to 13, that has to do with this whole conversation. Um, a big piece of um, mass incarceration is also the prison prison industrial complex. That was like the biggest news to me when I first watched 13 that the fact that the prison system is is a business like it's not it's not correctional it's not to reform people it's not to get people back obviously everyone knows that but it's literally the opposite like people are profiting off of people being in prison and putting people in prison um, the prison industrial complex um, comprises of prisons private prisons um, politicians hella businesses that you would be disappointed in Pretty sure State Farm is one of them. Like hella businesses. Like when I when I saw that, I was like, "This is this is a whole business. It was built this way." So when we say abolish the police, abolish all these things, we mean it because it's it's not broken. It was built this way. Um, that's the only thing I had to rant about. So look that up if you don't know what that. That's also a really hard pill to swallow. Like I know we we're making jokes about America early, and Perry's gonna uh, close, but um, like sitting with the fact that none of the stuff we're experiencing was done by accident. That's, that's such a hard pill to swallow in my mind. It makes me like lose faith in humanity a little bit, but that's a conversation for a different day. <laughs> well, guys, um, unfortunately, we are coming to a close. Um, as we always do, we enjoy this time. Um, but what I want you guys to take with you, I want you guys to remember these mustard seeds. Remember the mustard seeds. We always see the plants, but nobody ever thinks about the seeds. So remember those mustard seeds. Everybody sees the art, but they don't see the context. So I want you guys to remember the context. And when you look at people that look like me, or you look, like, look at people that look like Tyree, or people that look like Marquise or Rashawn, I want you guys to remember, these are all real things that we live, or even Jay. These are all things that as minorities here in America, and as people that are the children of families that built this country, these are all things that we still have to endure on a daily basis, even despite the prices that we pay for us to live the luxuries that we live as everyone, the luxuries that we all enjoy. <laughs> These things are built off our backs. So I want you guys to remember this. I want you guys to remember the mustard seed, remember the context, because before you look at me and judge me, there is always context to any and everything that I do. It's never done in a vacuum. So I want you guys to remember that. <laughs>